And tonight we will be in Psalm 86. Psalm 86. And you find our passage on page 494 in the Pew Bible. Be reading all 17 verses of the psalm. I bring the text up on the screen. Reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for you to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have, you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart. And I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because of you, because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. As human beings, uh, relationships are definitional to who we are. Your relationship with your parents informs who you are as a son or a daughter. Our relationship uh, we, we, um, with the world informs us in how we live, how we interact with it, teaches us our capacity, our limitations. I mean, you've ever watched a small child just exploring and tasting and touching everything that they can around them, right? They're testing the limits of everything. Uh, we even have a relationship with ourselves, as odd as that may sound, in how we perceive of ourselves. But the most definitional relationship we have is our relationship to God as our creator and our redeemer. But the fall has thrown all these relationships into disorder and chaos. What is more, we have a tendency to elevate one of these relationships, our relationship with ourselves or with the world or with other people above God. People believe that they can define themselves apart from God and arrogant pride 
and assume that all other relationships are merely there to serve their own pleasure and happiness. People will seek after the good opinion and applause of other, uh, of other people over God's truth. People have more respect, love, and admiration for the created order than they do for human beings or for the God who made it. And so tonight we actually have a wonderful corrective for us in the prayer of David. In this psalm, David lays out for us almost we could call three kinds of prayer that reveal things about God and about us. In doing so, David, uh, he, he recenters our thinking on our relationship with God. And in doing so, we get an accurate picture of ourselves. And so first, we will consider verses 1 through 7 and the, uh, the prayer of need. And then we will look at verses 8 through 13 and our prayer of adoration. And finally, in verses 14 through 17, our prayer for deliverance. So first, we consider our prayer of need in verses 1 through 7. And as we consider David's words here, we, what rises to the, to the fore very quickly about people are, is what we can call the limits, the limitations of men. David begins, if we just consider how David describes himself before the Lord, he describes himself as poor and needy. Now, from a human perspective, David in his life was many things, but I'm not sure poor and needy would be two descriptors that I would be inclined to give him. Even before he was king of Israel, he was the mighty warrior poet who, while he wasn't killing Philistine giants was running around the forest with 400 of his closest friends who all brandished weapons of war. Yet David has a keen perspective on his true state. Now this may have been written uh, while Saul sought to kill him or when Absalom, his, Absalom, his third son, was trying to you know, usurp the throne and had driven him out of the palace under, under the cover of night. Uh, his, his life is certainly in danger as he goes on to reveal towards the end of the psalm. But whatever the actual case is, is here, David perceives his weakness and his need, despite what advantages he may have. And given how he connects this need in verse 4 to his soul, it would seem that David is indicating a need in poverty that goes beyond just the physical into his whole being. Consider all the other ways that David describes himself here. He says poor and needy. He describes himself as godly, as a servant, as one crying out all the day to God in prayer, pleading for grace, calling upon God to answer him in his need. David, for all his ability and his might, for his rugged good looks. I mean, the Bible goes out of the way to tell you David was a handsome man. All right? So he must have been really good looking. Okay? Uh, but for all that, David recognizes his weakness and his inability and his absolute need for God. He cannot save himself from the situation. Now, in describing himself as godly, he doesn't, he's not saying that he's perfect. He is saying that, you know, it's, uh, if you look at David's life, um, it, you know, you could almost say that David was guilty of every sin in the book except for idolatry. He may have violated, uh, you know, uh, commandments 3 through 10. 
but he didn't violate the first two. He says, I have, you know, he doesn't turn away. He turns back to God. He goes back to God. He writes songs about repentance and turning back to God. He has sinned to be sure in thought, word, and deed, but he has made use of the sacrifices of the tabernacle, certainly, to atone for his sins as God commanded. He looks to God for forgiveness and mercy and help. David simply means by ascribing godliness to himself that he is a devout member of God's people. It is important for us to have a right understanding of our limitations and our need as God's people. God has provided us with the ability such that many of our needs are met uh, through his daily provision, through his means of our employments and savings and, and all the things that we do. However, we, we come upon situations and needs that remind us, that are, that, are, that are almost put there, it seems, to exclusively remind us that we need God above all else. We are hardly go through a moment in life where there's at least some situation in our life or the life of a dear one that's near us that reminds us that we need help and we need God. And we need those reminders those reminders that we are not God, so that we would not become prideful. But we also need the reminders that there is indeed a God who loves his people so that we would not despair. And so in this revealing the limitations of man, it points to uh, the glorious sovereignty of God. David gives us a variety of verbs in verses 1 through 7 that communicate his need, but his need for the sovereign God to act. David doesn't have the capacity. David doesn't have the ability, but God does. And so, the, and so this reveals David's understanding of who God is, and that affects how he prays. And so Yahweh, which is that Lord, all caps, right? He's praying to the covenant God using the covenant name. He said that, first of all, God is a God who answers prayer, that God is the one who stoops, to listen to the prayers of his people, he begins and ends verses this section in verses 1 through 7 with that reality, the God who listens to his people. And how critical it is for you and I to know that our God answers our prayers, that, 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 we are, that, you know, uh, uh, you know, that we're not just talking to the ceiling, that our tears aren't just falling upon the floor, but that God hears us and he answers us. He answers our cries. That God, according to David, preserves the lives of his holy ones, his saints. But what is a saint? Is it, is it those who have been canonized by the Roman Catholic Church, who have done their lives of good service and works and deeds and their miracles, presumably? No, a saint is one who is trusted in God, who is trusted in Christ, who has a relationship with God in his grace. Our God does not lose one of his precious saints. He preserves them all by the work of his word and spirit. David also teaches us that God is the one who ministers to souls. That is, God cannot, he, he, can, he not only can meet our physical needs, but he does what no other can. He can actually reach into our souls and minister to us there. This very reality is what drew Martin Lloyd-Jones into the ministry. He was literally the, 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 the royal physician of British royalty. 
could, he, couldn't have, he couldn't go any higher. But then he moves into the ministry and asks him why. He said, because for all our medical knowledge and capability and all of that, I cannot heal the soul, but God can. And that's the closest thing he get, could get to doing it was preaching the gospel. And so he moved to the ministry. And my favorite thing was when he said, told his wife, and she was like, what makes you think you can be a preacher? I was like, that's a good wife, right? That's a good wife right there. What makes you think you can preach? <laughs> and he was like, because I preach to my own heart. <laughs> he said, I, I preach to myself. <laughs> so. God works his grace in the deepest parts of our lives. And so, as David does, we lift our souls to him. You don't lift your soul to your doctor. You know, did, when was the last time you went to your ENT doctor for soul care, right? You're like, no, I'm snoring, and my wife says you need to fix me. So what? give me the machine, right? That's what you go for. But he is able to gladden us, even in the midst of the deepest sorrows, whether we are grieving terrible loss, enduring physical affliction, or as one missionary did uh, quite famously, spend the night in a tree hiding from cannibals who were seeking to eat you. In, wh uh, in which he said that night was the sweetest time of fellowship he ever had in his entire life with the Lord. God does all of this, David says, because of two things. First of all, because God is good. Our God is good. Don't just blow past that. If God was not good, if he was evil, if he was indifferent, if he was some kind of blank slate, some, no, he has revealed himself to be good. His goodness, in particular, you know, in creation, we talk about not God's grace. We talk about his goodness being revealed as the creator. Because grace, we associate rightly with mercy and covering of sin. But in creation, it's not grace that he reveals. It's goodness. Our God is good in his creation. He is good in his provision. He reveals that goodness. Our God is good. Such a simple statement. But it is so important for us to remember, to remind ourselves when our circumstances are not good, that our God is. And our God, as I just said, has revealed his goodness in this world that he made. And even though this world has fallen into sin, he daily reveals to us, reminds us of that goodness. And this, even if it's just the sunrise, he reminds us of his goodness still. But David says, secondly, he is also forgiving. He, he could be good and not forgiving, right? But now he's also good and forgiving. Our God is long-suffering and patient. He is so with us. He is ready to forgive us if we will confess our sins to him. Always ready to forgive his children. So our, this prayer of need reveals the absolute sovereignty of God, not in some cold, calculating fashion of somebody, you know, the, the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain, just, you know, pushing the buttons and pulling the strings, or, so, or just some, uh, some divine accountant behind there just moving things around on the divine abacus. But our God's sovereignty is revealed in, in warm, loving, blessed, covenantal relationship 
in which he is our God and we are his people. And he concerns himself with us to bless us and help us in our need. Then we move next in verses 8 through 13 to our prayer of adoration. And rather than starting with man, we, we begin with God, because that's where David begins. And what, beginning with what I summarize or call the holiness of God is what he's describing here. And I call it the holiness of God uh, because of how David describes God in these verses. He says, there is none like him among the gods. Not that there are gods, of course. Uh, for some liberal scholars, the mention of this confirms their assumption that Jewish monotheism evolved out of some pagan polytheism that this is just a remnant of polytheism that somehow slipped through the editing process. And I won't go through the, all that argument again. I went through a whole thing on it several weeks back. But, uh, but just in brief, I, do, I would say it is pure arrogance and condescension to assume that somehow some team of Jewish editors missed this in the scriptures. And secondly, as Herman Bovink argued over a century ago, there has never been an instance of monotheism evolving out of polytheism. It's never been done. It's never happened. But you have seen monotheism evolve into polytheism. And that has happened. That is recorded. And so, and, but, and so you have one that has moved to the many gods, but not the reverse. What it, and so... Uh, but what is established is men who are polytheists called out of it into monotheism, into divine truth. You have that is true as well. That is gospel ministry. Rather than affirming the reality of pagan gods, David is simply using the pagan myths as a point of contrast. I did the very same thing just last week on Sunday morning when I was citing Homer's Odyssey and, and the goddess Athena and Odysseus and, uh, and comparing, comparing him to Jesus in his suffering. Now, in doing so, was I affirming the existence of Athena? No. I'm simply comparing pagan religious myths. I could just as well have compared uh, Jesus to myths from Scientology or Hinduism. It doesn't justify them simply to say God is unlike the gods of other religions. The point then here is the uniqueness of God, his otherness in comparison with all other beings. But his otherness in his being, but also his otherness in his works. Because holiness is essentially uniqueness. It's being set apart. And God is set apart in a way that no one else is that no other creature is. God is uncreated holiness. Un he is undefinably unique. And so he is, um, and so he is great in his being, David says. He does wondrous things. And then he affirms, he alone is God. There are no other gods. Like a car naturally veering to the side, we have, uh, we have a need to have our steering corrected because we naturally tend to move God into a category of a super creature. And we are astounded every, every once in a while to discover that God is not like us. 
Our God is not one that we conceive of in our, of our, in our imaginations. Or honestly, he would be a lot more like us than he is. He would not confuse us nearly as much as he does. He would not be so concerned with sin. He would be a little more cheery about being our servant because what's a God made in my image supposed to be like if not be there to serve me and to affirm me? But then God breaks into our lives with his works that lift our eyes to the thunder and lightning of Sinai and remind us that our God is holy, unique, and other. And to him is due his praise. Indeed, such is his holiness and his being and his works that all the nations, David says, will come and worship and bring glory to his name in the end. This is the end result, not only of this psalm, not only of the the view of David here, uh, of, of even the view of the Old Testament. This is the view of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2. That through the revelation of grace, through his son Jesus Christ, that God the Father will receive all glory as every knee shall bow and every tongue confess the lordship of Jesus Christ. Who gets all the glory? God the Father. When all the nations come. And the holiness of God, though, you would think the holiness of God, the uniqueness of God, the wonder of God might produce uh, fearful disciples, uh, uh, reverent disciples, uh, and certainly it, it would do that. But David uh, actually says that it produces grateful disciples. That's the corollary, the, the corollary that he puts here. That the uniqueness, the holiness of God uh, that in response to that, David asks God to teach him his way. That as David's interaction with the uniqueness of God leads him to want to be like God, to be holy like God, to, to be more godly than he is, to grow in holiness. And so he takes the posture of a disciple asking God to teach him his way. But how can we walk in the way of God as creatures? Surely we cannot do it as God does. We do so as those made in the image of God. We do so, we walk in the way in our covenant relation to our holy God. By his word. By his spirit. Indeed, it's like what Peter said in the, in, the, in the first chapter of his first letter, that citing Leviticus, that we, are, that we are called to be holy. Why? Because our God is holy. He goes on in chapter 2 to say, We are a holy nation of royal priests, a living temple in which spiritual sacrifices are made through Jesus Christ. That's how he describes the church. Us. Not this building. Us. But often our hearts and minds are divided over worldly desires and lusts. And so it is good to pray like David does, that God would unite our heart, that we would fear God. Because reverence does not pour forth from a man whose loyalties are divided between God and money, as Jesus taught. You can only have one master, so choose wisely, he says. Further, David shows us that, that, that we ought to be grateful, that this gratitude comes from a united heart that God provides by his spirit and his word that resolves itself in eternal praise. 
And why is that? David says, because this God has shown his covenant love, his steadfast love towards his people, towards us, and how he has delivered our souls from the depths of the grave. A holy God who's absolutely unique, who calls us to be his people, who, and we desire to walk in his way. Why? Because this unique, holy, wonderful God has delivered our souls from the depths of shale. David's commitment to a life of holiness and praise in the Lord proceeds from the mercy of God toward him. And so it is with David, so it is with us. We do not commit ourselves to holiness, to walk in God's way, that God may eventually, one day, many years from now, if we're good enough, accept us and make us his own. We commit ourselves to holiness because God has already accepted us, delivered us, called us, made us alive in his son, and dwelt us with his spirit and given us his command. When we think about the Great Commission, what does Jesus tell the disciples? He says, baptize and then teach them to obey my commands. He doesn't say, teach them to obey my commands, and once they have obeyed them enough, once they get to a um, you know, 70% threshold, you know, it's like when I was, um, I, I had mortgage insurance on my mortgage for a long time, but once I got to a certain percentage threshold of paying it off, that is, it was a sweet day, that mortgage insurance dropped off, yes, right? And it's not like, it, but that's not how it works with God. It doesn't like you get to a certain percentage threshold and he finally goes, okay, now you can be one of my people. You've proven yourself. We are baptized, brought into the community of faith, baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and taught to obey the command of Christ because we are his. We live holy lives because we are in Christ, and we are holy unto the Lord. And this brings us finally to our prayer of deliverance, verses 14 to 17. And while the first section of the prayer really focused on the, the, uh, um, the limitations of David, the limitations that we have, this, real, this prayer uh, reveals our present weakness and desperate need. Uh, David turns to the, the very specific and dire situation that he is in. Insolent men have risen up and they're seeking to kill him. Uh, it's quite a life when you, when, when you think, uh, uh, you know, if somebody says, hey, someone's trying to kill David, you're like, which time? Right, it's just kind of like, it, and and there there and there are kind of sometimes where people are, uh, you know, they, they get into trouble and stuff like that. They're like, oh, so and so's in, uh, you know, talk about when so and so was in jail. You're like, well, which time, right? And so and so David has has had quite a life here where we go, we don't even. David has been on the run and people have tried to kill him so many times. We don't know which one this applies to, okay? But insolent men have ri have risen. They're ruthless, and even more, they do not trust the living God. They are godless men seeking to destroy David. David's needs are very real. He needs God's grace, strength, and divine favor to survive. He recognizes his inability to deal with these men who seek his life. It doesn't mean that he's completely passive, that he's just going to just sit under a tree until God works it all out. 
but he recognizes that he is dependent upon God to deliver him and to put his enemies to shame. And, and so consider the high concepts that David works with here in conjunction with his present needs. Because we have a tendency to separate these things. The, you know, David has a great physical danger that he has, but he's also talking about spiritual realities. We have a tendency to kind of separate those things, almost do separate prayer times for them. But... While, this, while the physical and the spiritual are distinct, they are connected together because we are spiritual and physical beings. I was reading one the, a theologian just recently that described uh, creation, especially human beings, as embodied spirituality. Right? Just highlighting that our souls are real. And it's our souls that are going to outlast our bodies. And that, and that our physical and spiritual, while they are distinct in us, they're not actually separate things as if there's two of us, right? We are spiritual and physical beings, and our prayers should reflect that. Um, and so it's, but we are also weak and needy, and we need God's help. And so, and, and, and so our present weakness, David's present weakness, our present weakness, reveals the compassionate rule of God, particularly as the one who governs us. And cares for us. David's confidence in in these verses is uh, is rooted in his knowledge of who God is. He actually quotes Exodus thirty four, where God revealed Himself uh, in in view of the needs and sinfulness of His people to be the God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That is, God is the true king of his people who provides for and protects his people, who frustrates the designs of our enemies and brings his people into flourishing eternal life. Even more, from go, moving from David's psalm here, we have a fuller revelation of grace than David did because we have the son of David, Jesus Christ. We have a fuller revelation of God's divine rule in Jesus, who is the king of kings. As citizens of his kingdom, he not only brings us into his kingdom spiritually now and physically at the end, Jesus also protects and provides for us, ultimately frustrating our enemies. He provides help and comfort for us. It enables us to even love our enemies today and if nothing else, to bring shame upon them and to keep burning coals on their head. But Lord willing, they would turn and repent by our faithful witness. And so we need to see that in this psalm, God is not merely being compassionate with David. But he is communicating his compassion for us today through Jesus. And so we, so, you know, I ask you, do you need help and comfort tonight? Are you being hounded and harassed by sin and temptation? Are the devil, the flesh, and the world bringing sorrows and afflictions and terrors to your life? You need to remember that your God loves you. 
The God who gave his son for you, who will deliver you from every evil thing, the scripture says. The God who has set you apart for greater glory and joy. These prayers of need, adoration, and deliverance are, are, uh, are very much about, they reveal much about our relationship with God. Our God is supremely holy and loving. And he loves to show his compassion to his people. We are needy and spiritually poor. But Jesus says that ours is the kingdom of God, for we are blessed because we trust in him. The reality that this psalm hammers home is not only the reality of human weakness and need, it is not only the reality that our God is sovereign, holy, and loving. This psalm reinforces the great truth that we must take into our hearts and our minds again and again that the one who entrusts his soul to the Lord will never be put to shame but will in time receive the glorious eternal joy of life in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Jesus we have that eternal assurance. We have all the hope and confidence and comforts that David speaks of here. We have them with greater clarity, with greater assurance, with greater fullness. And so, Father, we thank you, Lord, that your promises, though they are certainly of one substance, traveling through your mercies that you give to your people, but that we now have a fuller revelation of them in the gospel on this side of the cross. And, Lord, we pray that we would take that to heart, an encouragement to ourselves, and that we would be quick to go to the throne of grace with boldness on account of Christ to declare our weakness and our limitations and our needs, to, to give you the praise that you deserve as the sovereign and holy and compassionate God, and to entrust ourselves to you knowing that you will uphold us, that you will preserve us in every high and low of this life, even through the veil of death itself as we enter into your glory and one day fully and finally into the new heavens and the new earth. Father, may you lift up our eyes today that we may be reminded that our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth and the redeemer of our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand now.